Chapter Twenty Three of the King's Daughter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The King's Daughter by Pansy. Chapter Twenty Three. The Doctors and Their Patient. His ways are not as our ways. It seemed to be a magic name, Doctor McHenry. Little Doctor Jones drew himself up and bustled forward, and Mister Nelson bent curious, searching eyes on the newcomer. The name was very well known in Lewiston, but Lewiston had never laid eyes on the great man before. The five-hundred-dollar Boston doctor he was jocosely called by reason of the many fabulous stories that were afloat concerning his marvelous cures and equally marvelous prices. But fable aside, he was undoubtedly a wonderful doctor, and the joy in Dell's eyes did not compare with the feeling of sudden relief to her troubled heart. Doctor Jones was promptly introduced, and the question of brandy or no brandy again presented. I can, of course, form no opinion until I see the patient," said the grave-voiced Boston doctor. So daughter, uncle, and physicians went to the patient's room, the two others remaining outside, eager for the conclusion of the whole matter. A rapid examination of the patient's pulse, a few brief, rapidly put questions, and Dr. McHenry fixed his grave, gray eyes on the little doctor's face and spoke in slow, deliberate tones. It seems to me that there is plenty of febrile action already. I see no occasion for increasing it. Of course not, eagerly and rapidly commenced the little doctor. And in ordinary cases, I should not advise it. But the excitement of the patient is such that I thought it better to allay it with a very little of what he craves. Suppose his diseased stomach should choose to crave a dose of arsenic. What then? Very low, very grave was the question, and the great gray eyes were fixed thoughtfully on the little man. Doctor Jones crimsoned and made haste to answer. Of course, we wish your advice on the matter. I have felt the need of consultation myself. And if you think, and I have no doubt you are right, but the excitement, my friend, I assure you, he has been perfectly raving for liquor all day. How would you manage that? I should not hope to allay it by feeding him brandy. Still, the very low, very grave tones. At this point, the sick man aroused from his uneasy slumber and began his petition for a drop of something cooling and strengthening. Meantime, the Boston doctor had withdrawn into the shadow, motioning his companion to do the same. Dell offered her earnest explanation why it was impossible to gratify him, to which he responded with impatient and contemptuous exclamations. Doctor Jones bustled up to him and offered his crumb of comfort. We have decided, Mister Bronson, that the nervous condition of your system is such that we shall have to refuse you all liquors for the present. Nervous fiddlesticks," said Mister Bronson in feeble anger. "When did you decide it? Seems to me you've wonderfully changed your mind." You told me not an hour ago that it would do me good to have a drink. Not quite that, Mister Bronson," replied Doctor Jones with crimsoning face. "But since that time we have had a consultation and decided differently. Who has? Doctor McHenry of Boston. Mister Bronson knew the name very well indeed. For about half a minute he was awed and astonished. The next he clearly believed Doctor McHenry to be a myth, so far at least as his presence in Lewiston was concerned. I don't care for all the doctors in Boston put together," he said in utmost peevishness. "I want a drink of brandy, and I'm going to have it." Doctor McHenry stepped quietly forward. "Let me try," he said to Doctor Jones. Then he stepped to the bedside, fixed those singular gray eyes of his upon the patient, and spoke in clear, steady tones. "My friend, are you entirely ready to die?" A sudden shiver ran through Mister Bronson's frame, and for once his attention was turned from brandy. Are you, Doctor McHenry? He said in an odd tone. I am. And then the doctor repeated his question, 
the steady eyes meantime reading the sick man's face. Mr. Bronson's voice grew very husky and trembled over his next question. Am I going to die? That is more than I can tell you, but I can state the case frankly. You have burnt up your stomach with rum. That is much worse to manage than the burns on your body and makes things more serious for you. At the same time, if you will aid us like a man in our efforts by trying to understand that whiskey, in all its forms, is your worst enemy, and if you will refuse to touch a drop, even if it is offered you, and will undertake the work of trying to keep your mind calm and quiet, we propose, with God's help, to see you safely through your trouble. But if you persist in fretting yourself into a fever over a poison which you must not have, or if any one is so cruel as to bring you brandy, and you are so insane as to drink it, your life will not be worth that. A sudden emphatic snap of Dr. McHenry's thumb and finger gave point to the startling sentence, and the mind of Mr. Bronson was most effectually set at rest on the liquor question. The days that followed were full of sickening anxiety. The patient had drained his constitution years before, and had very little left with which to endure his pain. Then there was added to his torment the burning of a perpetual craving thirst that refused to be allayed by anything that was within his call. Still Dr. McHenry's words had thoroughly sobered and frightened him, and he gave what help he could in trying to smother his longings and control his unsteady brain. As for Dell, her faith had returned to her. She did not let it go again for an instant. When her uncle Edward told her gently, Dear child, you must be prepared for the worst. Dr. McHenry thinks the case more than doubtful. She looked up in his face with a calm, brave smile and answered steadily, he will not die, Uncle Edward. God will not let him die until he is safe. Firmly she clung to this belief. When on the fifth day he seemed to sink beyond all human aid, when, in answer to a beseeching telegram, Dr. McHenry came again, and arriving late in the day came on tiptoe to the bedside and stood with the rest awaiting in solemn silence the departure of a soul, even then Dell's face was calm and hopeful. She responded in person to Mr. Nelson's call, and in answer to his inquiry said, they think he is dying, but he is not. I know God will not let him die. I never saw one apparently so near death's door, Dr. McHenry said afterward. I had no idea he would ever speak again. That was very powerful medicine that we administered, Dr. Jones said, rubbing his hands in satisfaction. And Dr. McHenry answered quietly, It was not medicine that called him back. It was the prayer of faith. Gradually there dawned upon Dell a knowledge of what his way was to be, not after her shaping, yet God had given her in her inmost heart the assurance that her father would not die until that thought that he had toward her to give her an expected end was accomplished. It was for that purpose that she believed that the almost departed soul had been bidden to tarry for a little, long enough to hear and accept the pardon at the eleventh hour. Not so, and gradually there came to her the knowledge that her share of the work was not yet done, that her father was to live indeed, that is, that no further immediate danger was to be apprehended, that his life might even, probably would, be lengthened out by years, that he would be crippled and deformed, needing her constant care and thought, needing to be watched over and fed and cared for like a child, and that there would be no childlike gentleness and submission and love to make the work pleasant and hopeful. As the weeks passed, the excitement and deep interest that had awakened in the hearts of the people died quietly out. The village was no longer put in a flutter over Dr. McHenry's comings and goings. The great man had done his work for the poor cripple and came no more. Uncle Edward still came and went, spending one afternoon of every week with his child, strengthening her and helping her, 
and by means of his cultured taste and ample purse, gradually making the two rooms that they occupied at the widow Parker's into bowers of beauty. Mr. Nelson and Jim Forbes and Sam Miller were patient, faithful, constant friends. Yet still the weight of the work and the burden rested on Dell, and heavy the burden certainly seemed. Never in his most hopeless liquor-drinking days had Mr. Bronson been more fully determined to hear not a single word of a religious nature. Indeed, his indifference seemed to have been changed into positive vindictiveness. He would not listen to a prayer from his brother-in-law. He would not allow Dell's Bible to be kept on the little stand at the foot of his bed. He stopped her harshly if she began what he called one of her psalm tunes, and in every way he seemed to have gone backward. In every way save one. His brain was entirely clear from liquor during these days. Dr. McHenry's final warning had been too plainly and solemnly worded for even him to disregard, but he seemed bent on having vengeance for his marvelous self-denial by being as miserable in himself as possible and making all around him share in his misery. Meantime, Dell was completely shut in from the outside world. No more church-going for her. Her Sabbath school class passed quietly into Mr. Nelson's hands. Not one of them now but were quite willing to become his pupils, if their doing so would be any sort of comfort to Miss Bronson. The temperance meetings still went on, but they did without Dell. It is a good thing, she said, half laughing, half tremulously, to Mr. Nelson one evening, after he had been giving her an account of a successful meeting and the addition of two new members from her class. It is a good thing to discover that the earth can turn on its axis without your help, especially when you have been imagining that you did a great deal of the pushing. She stood with her uncle in the hall on the afternoon of a wintry day. He was drawing on his gloves and buttoning his overcoat and otherwise preparing for his snowy walk to the train. A whole week, perhaps two, before she would see his dear face again. Doesn't the little heart ever quail just the least bit? he asked, looking down on her and holding her to him with a yearning father's tenderness. It had been an unusually hard afternoon. Mr. Bronson had been in his bitterest mood, and there had come over the heart of the Boston merchant such a dismal sense of contrast between the life his darling was living now and the shielded, carefully nurtured life that she had lived in her Boston home that he fairly longed to carry her back into the brightness. She looked up wistfully. No, Uncle Edward, at least not often, not when I lean on the strong for strength. You are almost discouraged, I think, but I am not. Do you know I would rather have this intolerance of the whole subject than the absolute indifference that possessed him so long? I think almost any phase of the heart is better than indifference. You are right, he said quickly. An angry conscience is an aroused conscience oftentimes. Well, as the train shrieked around the corner, Goodbye, dear child. God bless you and keep you, and give you the desire of your heart. What are you especially resting upon today? She repeated it with an earnest, wistful light in her eyes. His ways are not as our ways. And her uncle added with a hopeful tenderness, His ways are always right. She stood at the window and watched him as he sped down the snowy street, the man who had been to her in every respect a father. Only a moment did she give herself the luxury of looking after him with loving eyes. Then she turned and went back to the waiting father inside, stilling her heart in the meantime with the thought that watching over and caring for them all was that other father whose daughter she really was. End of chapter 23 Recording by Tricia G.